Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Prepare yourself for the only talk radio show you'll want to turn up. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow now, is there? Anybody wants to get mellow, you can turn around and get the fuck out of here, all right? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast, Podcast. with host A. Trunk. Hey folks, it's Eddie Trunk. Welcome to another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. New episodes every Thursday. And you know the deal, get it wherever you get podcasts. Appreciate you checking it out and subscribing, bringing you interviews each and every week with some of your favorite artists and sometimes some of your favorite behind-the-scenes people. Uh, Maybe your favorite, you don't even know it. And that may be the case with this week's interview because it's one that I'm extremely excited to bring to you. And we'll get into that in just a second. As I tell you each and every week, the interviews that come your way here on the Eddie Trunk Podcast, all originate live on my Sirius XM radio show, which is called Trunk Nation, which is heard Monday through Friday live on Channel 106 volume from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time with nightly replays, 10 to midnight Eastern, audio, video, full shows, interviews, more, anytime you want on the Sirius XM app. If you're in the U.S. and Canada and you're not listening to Trunk Nation and subscribing, to Sirius XM, you're getting a tiny, tiny fraction of what I do on a daily basis on the radio here on the podcast. Also have a sixth show on Sirius XM on Mondays, 5 to 8 p.m. Eastern, live on Hair Nation Channel 39 and a syndicated terrestrial radio show. And of course, this podcast making eight broadcasts a week. Thank you for connecting with whatever ones of those that you do. Social media at Eddie Trunk, Twitter and Instagram, fan page on Facebook. Upcoming appearances, they are starting to roll in. October is going to be a nutty month for me. October 7th, it starts in Houston, Texas at Warehouse Live, hosting Sebastian Bach. October 9th, also at Warehouse Live, hosting Jackal in Houston. And then October 15, 16, and 17, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, Monsters on the Mountain. And then you've got the 80s in the Sand event happening in Cancun, Mexico, which is sold out. 
Just added October 31, Halloween, Woodstock, Georgia, hosting a listening party for Resist and Bite, which is a band that features former Tesla guitarist Tommy Skio. And that should be a lot of fun at Mad Life Studios. All info, links, and more on my social media and eddytrunk.com. This week for the interview, this is something you are going to love because I love talking to the behind the scenes people in the music industry. And this is one of the biggest guys with the most history you could possibly talk to in that world. It is producer Eddie Kramer. Eddie Kramer's resume is so vast, I wouldn't know where to begin as far as this podcast. There are three pivotal bands that Eddie Kramer is known for. Uh, Those bands include Led Zeppelin. Jimi Hendrix, and Kiss. So the interview you're about to hear will feature a good helping, three segments on each of those bands, and then a fourth segment covering other groups that Eddie worked with, everyone from Loudness to Anthrax to you name it. Again, even in the 90 minutes that I had with Eddie Kramer for this interview, we didn't even get into everything because it's just so much, but I think you're going to really love what we did cover And there's some great stories, some great insights from one of the legends in the world of music production. Eddie's a guy that I've known for a really long time. Back when I was working for Megaforce back in the 80s, Eddie Kramer was the guy who brought us Ace Freely that we ended up signing to his first solo deal. And Eddie produced that first solo record, Freely's Comet, which we didn't really get to talk about all that much in the interview just because there's so much other stuff to get to. But I was on Eddie for the longest time to try to get time with him to do this cor- this you know kind of career retrospective, and he was very generous with his time. Although again, with his resume, there's tons obviously we didn't have time for. But I think you're really gonna love this, and I can't wait for you guys to check it out if you've not heard it on SiriusXM. And I'm pleased to be able to bring it to everybody on a worldwide free platform like this podcast. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything. The new episodes hit every Thursday. You can also find me on Cameo if you're interested in a personalized video. Summer's almost over. We got a lot of great stuff coming up, a lot of appearances, a lot of events. Keep an eye on my social media, especially Twitter and Instagram, where I keep you updated on everything going on. This is a pretty long interview this week, so let's get right to it. Here is Eddie Kramer. Enjoy. It is a great pleasure and honor and thrilled to have with us here on this special edition of Trunk Nation, a man that I've had the pleasure of knowing for many, many, many decades. And he is still uh, one of the icons in the world of producing and engineering rock music. His resume speaks for itself. Joining us today is the one and only Eddie Kramer. Eddie, thank you so much. I've long wanted to do this with you, and I appreciate you taking the time. It is my pleasure. Good to speak with you, Eddie Trunk, the man. (laughs) Let me ask you this. Let's I like when I interview producers, I like to start here. And that is where it all started for you. You grew up in South Africa. Tell me how the music uh, bug bit you and how it led to you and your first engineering work and producing work. Not only did it bite me, it threw me across the room. In fact, I, I tell the story uh, when I'm doing my you know lectures to the audio students or anybody who wants to, who could stand listening to me. But when I was about, I, I'm guessing, three years old, something like that, growing up in South Africa, you know, in South Africa, it's like the British system for electricity. It's 220 volts. And apparently, according to my parents, and I do remember partially, 
I stuck a steel living needle into the electric socket and it threw me across the room. <laughs> and my dad, my dad picked me up and, and smacked me and said, what the hell did you do that for? Uh, <laughs> and I haven't seen the same thing. You were literally shocked into rock and roll. Yeah. And let me see. Wasn't there a Kiss song about shock me or something like that? Yes, on a record you produced on Love Gun. That was Ace's first lead vocal, Shock Me. That's right. Yeah. So there you go. That kind of foretold the situation that was going to happen like 60 years later or something. Well, we're definitely. Anyway, yeah. I- well, yeah, we're definitely going to get to some Kiss stuff, but but tell me about how you learned your craft, Eddie. Working, you know, initially coming into engineering, are you experienced and Axis Bold as Love, and working with Hendrix initially as an engineer? Where where how does how does a kid from from South Africa go to doing that? Well, it's it's a bit of a story. I mean, it's going to be in the new documentary film that we're about to make. Uh, called From the Other Side of the Glass. Shameless self-promotion, but there you go. Uh, this do. is in the era where one has to say what one is doing. Um, I've been writing the book on and off for many years, and I'm trying to draw it to a close this year so that we can get on with making the bloody movie. But the story, in a nutshell, is having grown up in South Africa in a very musical uh, family, my dad was an amateur violinist, and we had string quartets every Friday, and um, there was always fun and games with music. Um, I think I had a stab at playing the violin and the cello, but I gravitated towards the piano at a very early age and studied classical music. So I left uh, high school, which was about 19. Uh, and during the last few years of my um, education in South Africa, I was at the South African College of Music part-time. Uh, but the rot set in when I was a teenager, around about 14 years old. I discovered jazz, and then from there, I fell into rock and roll, and listening to it on a shortwave radio. Of course, in those days, there was no TV. <laughs> there was no FM. Uh, I had a little shortwave radio, and I heard all these incredible sounds coming from the Voice of America and the BBC Overseas Service, and that's how I got introduced to blues and rock and roll, and hearing Little Richard just drove me nuts. Uh, And um, the journey from there was from South Africa to London three times, my folks, because we wanted to settle in England. My mom was English. Um, and, uh, it was, the final trip was in 1960, and when I arrived in London, I had to figure out quickly, what the hell am I going to do with my life? Um, I got into advertising of all things, um, but there I found this wonderful television, uh, space where they were showing TV jingles. I was working for an ad agency and I got fascinated with all the gear that was showing these commercials every day. You know, I had audio and subjectives and stuff like that and I was fascinated with that and I tried to figure out how the hell can I combine my love of electronics and music and I 
one day figured out, damn, it's a recording studio. So I wrote off letters to a half a dozen recording studios in London in 1961. And early in 62, I got back a letter saying, come for an interview. And that was my first job at AdVision Sound on 83 New Bond Street. And from there, it just went on and on. Supply Studios, where I did The Kinks, and Chula Clark, and Sammy Davis. And then I had my own studio for a while. Uh, and then things started to change. I heard about a studio called Olympic. And I made sure that I got in there and... We can continue the story thereafter. So you get to Olympic. Is that where you meet Jimi Hendrix? Where do you first meet Hendrix, which is, to my knowledge, your first engineering credit? Uh, actually, that's not the first engineering credit. Well, there are a few others before that. But I go to Olympic in 1966, and we moved the studio from the center of London to a suburb of London called Barnes. B-A-R-N-E-S. And it's this tiny little village, and it has this beautiful building, uh, which was a movie house, it was a cinema, a movie house. And it was converted into a recording studio called Olympic in uh, late 66. And so the first gigs there were the Swingle Singers, uh, and then the Stones. I started working with the Stones there. It was, uh, Glenn Jones was senior engineer. I was assisting at that point. I wasn't quite yet a senior engineer. And we did the, um, the, between, uh, the Between the Buttons album, the Flowers album. And, um, that, that was some of the first rock and roll stuff that I actually was assisting on. And then where do you meet Jimmy? Do you meet him at Olympic? So come in January, uh, late January of 67, um, I get a phone call from the office, um, the front desk. And it was a lovely lady by the name of Anna Menzies. And she called me up and she says in her lovely British voice, Hey, Eddie, there's this American chappy with the big hair, and you do all that weird shit, so why don't you do him? And that's literally how I got to record Hendrix. And I remember meeting him for the first time when he walked into the studio on a very cold, late January day, and uh, he had a funky kind of raincoat on. He was huddled up in the corner. All the gear started to rise, the amps, and the drums, everything was set up, and I'm running around like a mad fool, plugging in mics and Get it, getting everything set up. And once it was, he, can't, he stood up, walked over to the amp, switched on, plugged in, and I'm about, I don't know, maybe six, eight feet away, and he hit a corner, and I think my brain froze for a brief moment. <laughs> but I'd never heard anything quite like him. I'd heard him on the radio. I read the stuff in the NME. And, but just standing in front of that amp, hearing that sound just, completely blew my mind. Eddie, what were the, as somebody that worked so closely with Hendrix, and I mean, we could obviously do this whole show on, on Hendrix, and just in the interest of time, I'm going to be jumping around quite a bit here, but as somebody that obviously knew him intimately, worked with him, uh, worked on his records, what what 
don't we know as fans that you know? Like, what's the one thing that you wish more people talked about or knew about Jimi Hendrix that maybe hasn't been covered and hasn't been expressed as greatly as you feel uh, feel it should be? I mean, for me as a fan, I always felt his singing was a bit overlooked. I, I love his voice. Obviously, when you play guitar like that, so much attention is going to go to the guitar, rightfully so. But I loved his voice as well. But as a guy that knew him, that worked with him, what do you think? Like, what what can you tell us about Hendrix that maybe we don't know enough about? Well, I think you you brought up a very interesting point. Um, so many artists like Jimmy who are superstars in, in in regards to the way they played the instrument, and Jimmy certainly <laughs> drew attention because you know he was a one of a kind, and I don't think we'll see the likes of that again for, who knows, I hope we do. But uh, he was very unique uh, in the sense that the voice expressed ideas and shapes and sounds very much like his guitar playing. I mean, I think if one listens to him sing, and he was a song stylist. He wasn't a great singer, but he was a song stylist. And the way he utilized his range was absolutely genius because it fit precisely with what the rhythm section was doing, how loud he was playing, the intricacy of the lines. Um, he always made sure he wanted his voice buried in the track. That's for sure. I don't think many people know about that. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. He just hated his voice. He thought he had the worst second voice in the world. And he never wanted it high up. Well, not high, but there was always a battle in the initial uh, albums, uh, certainly on Are You, on, uh, uh, Are you Experienced and uh, all, the, all the early albums. You know, it's like, hey, man, and you would talk to Chaz. When Chaz would say, God, I put my voice down. And then Chaz would gradually inch it up and inch it up with me. And he said, Eddie. It up. So here I am, I'm sitting in the middle between Chaz on my right and Jimmy on my left. Jimmy's whispering in my ear, I put it down, put it down. And Chaz on the no, no, push it over here. <laughs> and I had, to find that, I had to find that compromise between the, uh, the, the two worlds there. Um, I thought he had a great voice, quite frankly. Um, I thought it was expressive and a delight. Um, and, and that's what I think fans should, should look at. The other thing I think fans have a tendency to overlook are his lyrics, which I think were incredible, incredibly descriptive. Um, he took you on a lovely journey from the moment he opened his mouth, you know, and the, the lyrics were of another world. I think he was on a different astral plane when he played as well. Yeah. You know, and again, uh, just in the interest of time, I'm going to move forward from Hendrix. But I do want to ask you this. Hendrix is the artist that you are probably not probably I would say most aligned with now in the last 20 or 30 years. The reissue projects, whether they be video, audio, both. You are intensely involved in that. You've been very much involved with keeping his legacy alive, working on these reissues. How has that whole experience been for you to really be 
for the most part, the the custodian of keeping Hendrix's music out there now, as the way I see it. All right, thank you. That's that's very kind of you. Uh, I do feel it's an awesome responsibility to be involved with keeping Hendrix's music alive, and there are three people involved. You know, it's myself, Janie Hendrix, and it's John McDermott. We, I often jokingly refer to us as the power trio. Um, you know, because we have taken tremendous amount of time and effort to ensure that Jimmy's music is treated with respect um, for the fans, uh, for people who want to hear how he created his music. Uh, in fact, there's a new album that will be out uh, just before Christmas, I believe, and it's about uh, my experience, no pun intended, uh, with Jimmy in the studio um, and how that relationship developed and it's you, you're going to get a big kick out of this. So that's an awesome responsibility when you dive into these vintage tapes that are, you know, 50, <laughs> 50 more than 50 years old, you know, you, you, you got to be very careful. Uh, unfortunately, it's an amazing story that these tapes can still be played without a problem because they were made with a specific formula that didn't seem to deteriorate. Of course, everything's being digitized, but it's, it's um, working with a Hendrix tape is something like um, you go in sometimes with a little bit of trepidation and then as you open up the faders and push the bass and the guitars and the drums and stuff, you go, oh, I'm back in time. And it's, it's so rewarding and it's so gratifying to take some of Jimmy's music and retweak it to bring out all the fullness. Because we have technology today that just allows me to transform some of the earlier stuff you know, that hasn't been released and, and really give it the full treatment so that it sounds full and contemporary. That, that's been my job, and I love it. Are you still in as much awe now when you open up a tape and go in and restore some things or remix some things, hearing what he did as you were when you first met him and originally worked on the material? Does it still kind of put you in a place where, like, I... Like, because the thing about Hendrix is it's still it's still pretty much the benchmark even for most guitar players today in a lot of ways. So so do you still feel that way? Do you still feel like that that sense of awe when you hear it and hear things? Maybe are you picking out things that maybe you yeah. didn't even notice at the time when you were recording him? Oh yeah, I mean you know just <laughs> so many years ago, and all of a sudden I'm hearing a track and there's a guitar part. In fact, I'm just thinking now about this new release, there's some guitar parts on there that I had no idea. I couldn't even remember what he was doing because, you know, this stuff goes by so fast and these are not the master takes, maybe one before the master and there's a, a couple of riffs that he plays. You're going, damn, that was some incredible playing. And even the, 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 the outtake of a solo that's not the final master is so genius. You go, we could put out eight different versions of this and they're all relevant. They're all fabulous. I mean, he would come into the studio after we had done an all day 
for all night session, you know, we've done a bunch of guitar work. Probably thought that, ah, we've got it, man. This sounds great. He came in the next day and said, you know, I've been thinking, I think I can do that one solo better. And we go, oh, okay, Jimmy. Put the tape up, blah, blah, blah. And we say, make sure you do not wipe that previous solo from yesterday. He found an open space. He punched it in and you go, oh, holy shit. He beat it. Because he just he just knew that. The, the last thing on Hendrix, and then I want to move on to, to Zeppelin. Um, I, I want to ask you, Eddie, did, you, did Hendrix know what he was doing was so unbelievably innovative and groundbreaking and that it was set a benchmark and that it would, that here we are in 2021 still talking about it? Or was he the kind of guy that just was like, hey, it's what I do, you know, people making a big fuss, I don't necessarily get it. Or do you think he knew that he was changing the game? That's a very good question. I'm, I'm trying to think uh, about what his response might have been. I think he was very shy. I, I know he was very shy. Uh, and I think he might have said, you know, you, might, you guys make a lot of fuss. Uh, I play my music. I love it. I'm trying to make the world aware of my philosophy, which is, you know, peace, love, and, and all the rest of that, because he was a peaceful man. Even though he had been in the Army, uh, I think he disavowed that. Um, you can't help but being influenced by some of the sounds, which, of course, you hear in, in Band of Gypsies and stuff like that, you know, machine gun. But he was vehemently anti-war. I think he wanted to be remembered for making great music that people enjoyed. I don't know if he really saw that far ahead into the future. Uh, I think he just wanted to be accepted as a man who could uh, give people pleasure and, and the, the share that emotional connection with him. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's remarkable. Again, we could obviously do full shows on, on Hendrix alone, but again, in the interest of time and the, your expansive resume, what I want to do is, you know, we just spent a little time on Hendrix, want to spend some time now on Zeppelin, and then we're going to spend some time on Kiss, and then in the final segment, I want to just go quick hit on some other things throughout your resume that I always wanted to ask you about. Clearly, there's a ton of other huge records and moments but uh, again, in the interest of time, we'll jump around a little bit. But when we get to Zeppelin, Eddie, tell me about Zeppelin and dis and working with them and how that came about. And was that connected to the fact that you were engineering for Hendrix? Um, I'm not sure if it was connected directly to that. No, I, I, I think the relationship with Jimmy Page uh, and John Paul Jones um, predates a lot of this. I, I was working at Olympic, as you well know, uh, 66-67, and, and there were many sessions that John Paul Jones came into Olympic uh, calling his bass and a little bass amp um, and with a big chart under his arm, and uh, he would stand in front of a 60-piece orchestra with the bass in his hand um, and conduct the whole bloody orchestra with that. He was an amazing musician. He still is, of course. Uh, great arranger, fantastic bass player. So I knew him. Uh, and then Paige. I uh, did some session with him at Olympic. Uh, in fact, for a song uh, called Hurdy Dirty Man, 
uh, with Mickey Mouse producing, and it was him and John Paul Jones on bass. Uh, so there was already knowledge of each other. Yeah, we nodded, we knew who each other was. And I think um, my relationship with uh, John Paul Jones was a, was a long-standing one. Uh, and in fact, he played me a copy of Zep's first album before it was it was in a test dressing. And I was in London at the time, and I think I was just visiting. And he played it for me at his house, and he and I was absolutely, completely gobsmacked. I said, "Wow, that's that's incredible music! I, I, what's the name of the band?" And he said, "I think we're going to call it Led Zeppelin." I said, "God, that's a stupid bloody name! I would never have called it that." And boy, was I ever wrong! <laughs> uh, <laughs> and. Um, then in 19, you know, I arrived in the States in 68, and then in 69, Zep were promoting their first album, and they came over to New York. And um, I got a call from the band's management saying, hey, Eddie, would you like to uh, work with, with the boys <laughs> um, and help them finish this record? And uh, so I said, yes, of course. Uh, and I booked... A&R Studios uh, to mix the record up. Prior to that, we had actually recorded a whole bunch of new tracks, overdubbed them in different studios in New York. They brought in a huge trunk, a traveling trunk full of one-inch tapes. They'd recorded in L.A. and in Vancouver and in London. Uh, but it all needed to be tied together and overdubbed and fixed and all the rest of that. Uh, and that was a, it was quite a, uh, how shall I say, a very interesting experience, very challenging because he's very particular. And I just loved the way he worked because he had such a clear vision of what he wanted to hear. And it just made my job easier. Oh, you want that? Okay, let me see if I can get that for you. And I do, did usually try to do that and, and most of the time was successful. We mixed the whole album over a weekend. Uh, this is eight track, by the way. Uh, yep, straight through Saturday and Sunday. And um, whole lot of love was uh, one of those ones where, you know, we're mixing it, and in the middle, um, I'm pulling faders around and turning knobs and all the rest of that. And I, I, I hear this extra voice coming out of nowhere. So what the hell is that? And I found out it was on track seven and I had all the volume turned off. So it was an extra vocal. It was bleeding through. So I'm looking at Paige and Paige looking at me. And as, as the tape is playing, we both reached for the reverb and cranked that on and just left in that extra voice. And that became part of history. And the moral for the story is you folks out there, we're using digital and pro tools and all that. Leave the damn mistakes in, mate. So, so you're saying in in whole lot of love, the the way down inside and that that echo effect, that call and response part in that breakdown, that is another track that was bleeding through that you and Jimmy heard and said, let's just go with it and put some reverb on it. That's it. Leave the mistakes in. What about in, in recordings where there's times where you can hear the bass drum pedal squeaking a little bit? 
were you guys aware of that? Same concept, same idea, leave it? Leave it, mate. Leave it alone. <laughs> and Jimmy was on board with that then. As the producer, Jimmy was, was all in on leaving it as raw and real and live as possible, it sounds like. Absolutely, mate. Absolutely. And Eddie, don't you, don't you think that's why, like, when I hear anyone hears the Zeppelin records, to me, they're, they're timeless sounding. I mean, they, they don't, they, they're 50 years old, and to me, they don't sound dated at all. It sounds like a great band playing great songs in the room with you. In retrospect, that really, at the end of the day, is a great lesson, isn't it? That, that, that just, just mic it up the right way, mix it the right way, and, and it'll stand the test of time. Was, was that the thought process then? Yeah, but you see, okay, that, that's a, a wonderful statement, and, and I wish it were true today. However, um, the times are different, mate. Uh, <laughs> you know, you look at that period from, say, 1960, mid-60s, maybe 66, maybe 65, you know, late, late Beatles days, up through Hendrix, Stones, Zeppelin, 60, 68, 69, all the way through about 71, 72, the golden age of rock and roll. Bands could do no wrong. They were pretty much in charge of their own destiny. Oh, you want to do a, you know, a double album? No problem, mate. And, you know, you you present them with a, a fabulous album that's well recorded, that's got some great songs on, and the bands played well. These guys were trained. And even if they weren't trained, they worked their asses off to get to the point where they were just so locked together. And there were obviously there were more places for bands to play live there uh, than there are today, unfortunately. So I, I think it was a very magical time. Um, there, there was a certain energy. That's not to say there isn't energy today. Uh, I look at the contemporary scene and I love some of the contemporary talent. I mean, I just think Billy Ida, for instance, is genius. Um, fantastic singer and just very innovative, very clever. Um, it's a different kind of music, though. It's not, you know, a band playing live in the room together. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know how many of there are of bands of that nature today that are quote-unquote live bands that make their living just playing live and, you know, recording live concerts. What what were some of the things that that you think that you learned from working so closely with Jimmy Page and maybe some things he learned from working with you as an engineer? Oh, I would say his perspective on the end result which was clearly defined, he had a vision. He's one of those few artists that I've worked with. I say Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Page, um, and there are quite a few others, but I, I, I always think of those guys as being um, visionaries. They could come into the studio and say, okay, this is the song. I know exactly how I think it should sound in the final analysis, and that's what we're going and, you know, you may take a little sidetrack to the left or the right and try to help them find that path. 
But when the vision is so clear in their heads and the drive to get there to that final product is, is perfection, got to get it just right. Uh, but not at the expense of feel. And that, if I could say I've learned from that, yes. And, and do you think, I would imagine, and having worked with Jimmy and on so many Zeppelin records, that there were some things that you brought to the table that Jimmy really picked up on and gravitated to. Do you remember an instance or a moment where you did something as an engineer where he really lit up and, and kind of adopted it and ran with it a little bit and then maybe used it in his own uh, stuff going forward? Oh, are you saying that Jimmy Page or Jimmy, oh, Jimmy Henry? Page, and I'm talking about like, because you had mentioned before we started this segment about Zeppelin II specifically and how many people talked to you about some of the engineering stuff you did on that record. So were there things that, uh, do you recall things in the studio where you did that, that you did that really kind of lit up Jimmy Page? I, well, I just think the, 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 the relationship is a very close one. I mean, we're, incredibly well together and I think the idea of being very free with sonic um, panic you know the panning thing I think he really enjoyed that use of EQ use of reverb but don't forget Paige pretty much knew a lot of where I was going I mean he could he knew immediately because I mean all those years he was in the studio so he had this idea and he would suggest something and then I would take it to another level. I, I feel I contributed by um, just pushing the boundary just that much more. Um, it's it painting a picture in, in, in the audio world, painting an audio picture. That's what I like to do. And if I've helped uh, make Zeppelin's music a little bit better or in that regard, I'm, I'm a happy camper, you know. You, you mentioned earlier about Hendrix and having a battle with Hendrix because he always wanted his voice lower in the mix and didn't feel that he was a good singer. When it came to engineering and working with Jimmy Page on the, on the Zeppelin records, do you recall any battles with Jimmy or anybody else in the band that they had about things we'd be surprised about, like push me louder, push me lower, I don't like this? Is, were there any stories like that coming out of the, the Zeppelin records? Not too many. I mean, I think because Jimmy had a pretty tight handle on what it was they were looking for. Um, it was usually if, 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 you know, if Robert's voice wasn't quite up to par, we wait a day for his voice to rest and then we'd do it again, you know. Um, you know, there, a lot of these guys were on the road. Same thing with Hendrix. They were on the road so much. So inevitably the lead vocal might suffer if you were in the studio, so you've got to wait a day or so for it to, to clear up. Um, I don't think there was any weirdnesses about that. It was really about getting the balance so that you can hear all the instruments, so the drums are as huge as you can get it, and uh, make sure that the guitars have a unique sound. It's really the uniqueness. That's what you're going for. You're trying to find that happy medium where things are screaming at you and banging as hard as they can, but it has to be unique. Did Robert 
uh, did uh, did a, did he do vocals? Uh, did he do a lot of passes on lead vocals, or did you get did he get a lot of stuff in one take? Um, he, he he had been known to do vocals in one take um, with some punch-ins. Uh, generally speaking, it'll be a couple, two or three takes, uh, and, and certainly in those days, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we were only on eight tracks, so we only had one or maybe two tracks, as I said, for, for vocals. Uh, a few punch-ins here and then, off to the races, mate. And what about recording... John Bonham's drums. I mean, the the, the dr- so much is made, rightfully so, of the drum sound on the Zeppelin records. What was it? Were, were you actually miking those drums and recording them? And, and can you take us through that process and what that was like recording him? Well, you, you couldn't go too far wrong recording Bonham because, <laughs> uh, quite frankly, you could stick him anywhere and put you know, a couple of 57s up and you'd get a bottom sound because he hit so damn hard and he just knew exactly how to get a tone out of his kit. He was remarkable. He was probably, I would say, yeah, the best rock drummer I've ever recorded. Um, and feel-wise, incredible. Just ridiculous feel. And he and Paige would work together in rehearsals and get the fills crazy enough so that if Paige heard a particular fill and was hearing a particular beat, he'd work with Bonham. And once Bonham got it, he was locked. And, he, you know, he might scratch his head when the time turned around and stuff like that. But once he figured it out, it was, watch out. Literally, you could mic him anywhere. I mean, I had the great pleasure of working with him in a small studio and then at, a, at Mick Jagger's house uh, Stargrove, where we did uh, House of the Holy and Physical Graffiti, and he had a whole room to himself. It was a big sort of glass conservatory, rounded windows, that kind of thing, so it was quite reverberant. So all I had to do is put up some close mics and a couple of room mics, and we're off to the race. And it sounded bloody marvelous. And, and what about recording Jimmy Page's guitars? Where When it came to that, obviously Jimmy is producing these records, but you're the engineer in that instance. Then at that point, I would imagine you are not only engineering and recording what he's doing, but you're also kind of at that point, correct me if I'm wrong, you'd have to kind of go into a sort of de facto producer mode, right? Because he's actually at that point you know, playing. So can you talk a little bit about how that worked? Yeah, I, th- I think you're correct um, in the sense that he would rely on me to get the He knew what he was looking for. It was up to me to mic it correctly, of course, and find the right place for it. Uh, at Starbucks, we were very fortunate. I mean, this is a bloody great big mansion, so there were many rooms that you could put an amp in, and it, the sound would change depending on the uh, decay time and the, the actual sonics of the room. Uh, a couple of times we actually stuck uh, one of his amps at the bottom of a fireplace pointing up the chimney and would mic it into a different angled mic just to get a different sound. Um, it's experimentation to the point of, that sounds bloody marvelous, Kramer. Let's use that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Eddie, are you amazed that just in, in closing out on Zeppelin, and I, I want to talk to you about Kiss here in a second, but are you amazed that this music that you were a part of creating, whether it's Hendrix, whether it's Zeppelin, whether it's some of the other stuff we've talked about, but specifically when it comes to Hendrix, Zeppelin, that that it is as relevant now and stands the test of time now in in you know under the umbrella of classic rock, but it's as as important now it seems to so many people with so many young people discovering this it's on the radio still constantly on classic rock radio are you amazed at this stuff did you have any inkling 50 years plus ago when you're working on it that it would occupy this space in history did you have any idea what you were doing was this special at the time and and a part of something this landmark absolutely not there's <laughs> no bloody clue. You know, you, you're there for the moment. You're there to make the band happy and give them the best sound you can possibly give them, you know, through the tracking, the overdubbing, and then the mixing, whether you were mixing at Electric Lady or wherever they would be mixing. Um, you come up with a final product. It goes out in the market, and you know Zeppelin's going to sell at least a couple of million records. Of course, you know, it goes more than that. And you're hearing it on the radio in the day. And then you think, all right, you know, the band has done very nicely. And then, of course, the tragedy hits and the band breaks up after Bonzo's death. But the stuff still keeps coming. And it goes back to the earlier conversation. It's classic. Why do you think they call it classic rock? Because it stands the test of time. This great song with fantastic structure great lyrics, tremendous performances by each individual in that band. And, you know, when we say band, we mean four guys, or sometimes four girls, or whatever, four elephants, I don't care, as long as they trumpet together, but a bunch. No, you know, it's like, if they're playing together, and they're making music together, and it's of a high standard, and it has an emotional wallop when the four of them are unified together and that sound comes at you, it is so pure and it has so much, um, it grips you, you know, in your mind and in your heart. And then that feeling of that rhythmic feeling, it just drives you crazy because it's just, you know, when you hear da-da-da, da-da-da, it's just, it's primitive, but it's controlled primitive. It is controlled no, I get what you're saying. Final thing on Zeppelin. Do you have a favorite Zeppelin record? No, I love them all, mate. Warts and all. <laughs> yeah, it would be tough to pick a favorite one, but I know you said a lot of people point to two as one of the ones in terms of an engineering perspective that you get a lot of questions about. Yeah, I mean, same with Thousand Thrones, Physical Graffiti. I mean, they all, they're all fantastic albums, whether I do or somebody else did it. They're amazing. Um, I, it, it, being associated with a band like Zeppelin is it's an honor. Well, we're going to talk with Eddie in the next segment here about a band that uh, my audience is going to be all ears about that is also... One of the legendary bands of all time that Eddie had a huge, huge role in 
And you recently saw him talking about that in the recent Kiss documentary. But we're going to get into some talk about the uh, the records Eddie Kramer made with Kiss and get some stories from that in the next segment. So stay with us. Be right back with more of my interview with Eddie Kramer after this. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Start clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's get back to more with Eddie Kramer on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Continuing this great conversation with producer Eddie Kramer about uh, some of the legendary artists he worked with, I want to do a section now on Kiss, an artist that so many of my uh, my audience loves as well, and really the conduit of how I first met Eddie back around 1986 when I was working with Ace Frehley, and he did Ace's first post-Kiss solo album. But we'll get to that in a second. First, let's uh, begin with... A question I always wondered about, Eddie, when it came to your history with KISS. We all know you did the initial demos for the band, which led to them getting a record deal and making their first record. But you didn't begin working with the band as a producer on the recorded stuff until the the live album, KISS Alive. So how was it that you ended up doing the demos, which yielded them the record deal, but didn't do any of the first three studio records what were the circumstances there? Did they just not ask you, or were you unavailable? Well, how it all came about was the band, meaning Gene and Paul at that point, were at Electric Lady Studios quite a lot. Uh, I used to see them walking up and down the corridor, hanging out outside Electric Lady, and they were, I think they'd done an album called Wicked Lester, which we all know didn't exactly go down too well. <laughs> Um, and I think what had happened was, uh, their producer, Ron Johnson at the time, who was, I think, helping to run Electric Lady, this is 1974, if I'm not mistaken. Um, they came to him and said, look, we want to, we, we want to make a rock and roll album. We've got a concept. 
And uh, Ron came to me and said, look, the guys want to do this. I said, oh, would you like to do this? It's not my kind of music. And I said, absolutely, sure. And I said to uh, I said to the guys, look, if I'm going to do this, we're going to do it the old-fashioned way. We're going to do a demo Studio B four-track. Not all this 16-track stuff. We're going to do it four-track. Just a real primitive, just the band in the studio, doing it as live as possible. And I'll never forget them coming into Studio B. Ace walks in. He was so skinny. If he turned sideways, you wouldn't see him. <laughs> and it was just, it was amazing, you know. Peter Chris, I used to come, I am from Brooklyn, man. You know, he's all that stuff. And, of course, the you know the the, the uh, brains behind the outfit, Gene and Paul, they were amazing. You know, we we had so much fun cutting those demos. Um, I'll, I'll never I'll never forget that. I, I remember very clearly. Uh, we're in the control room, and I'm looking at Gene to my left, and he's got this notebook, and in the notebook there's these little drawings of the various characters that will be the Kiss characters with a description of who they are, what they're supposed to be doing, what their roles were in the band. So it was very interesting to see the artistic concept of who they were going to be on a page, you know, in his notebook. So there was a lot of thought that went into that early stage of Kiss. And then I remember seeing them at the uh, uh, hotel, oh, Diplomat, Dip I think. Diplomat, yeah. Yeah, in New York uh, with Bill O'Coin. Blew me away. It was, it was brilliant. And, I, you know, I wish them luck on their, their journey. You know, they went off. They took the demo, which got them their record deal. Uh, and then they went to different producers, which was fine. I mean, you know, I had my life to get on with, too. And then one day I get a call from uh, Neil Bogart at Casablanca saying, Andy, do you want to do this band Kiss? You know, we got them on the label. They want to do a live album. I said, yeah, uh, Neil, can I call you back? Because on my desk was a tape from a band called Boston. And I called up um, the, the boys from Boston. Tom, Tom Schultz. Schultz and yeah. yeah, and I said, Tom, put this album up the way it is. It's bloody marvelous. Uh, and it was. It was genius. Uh, whether him, I think he may have re-recorded it, but it was incredible. I said, I can't add anything to this record. You, you, you're good, mate. <laughs> Just go do it. And I called Neil back. I said, all right, let's do this. And people always ask me, why? I love a challenge. <laughs> Eddie, let, let me ask you at this point. So working with Kiss super early on before the first record, and then working with Kiss for their first live album, which we all know the story was a very make-or-break proposition for them. But you had just come off of working with world-class musicians with Zeppelin, which you were still working with, of course, and Hendrix and all this stuff. There's so much made of Kiss as players, whether they were good players or not good players, especially at that time. Did you find it a challenge to work with them? Did you, what, what did you find... What were your what was your well, assessment I, with them as musicians? Well, you gotta separate it for a second because the the work I did with them thereafter, that's when you can start to analyze musicians versus whatever you want to call it. But the live album was a triumph. Now, were they completely and totally and utterly in tune and in time? No, not really. 
Did we do fixing? Of course. Did every other bloody band in the world fix their live albums? Of course. So that's what we had to do. And I think what turned out was it just showed that they were able to go in and fix what was not uh, done maybe 100% on the live show. Why? Because imagine you're you're on stage, right? You've got bleeding rockets going off left, right, and center. You've got bombs, you've got lights, you've got smoke. They're in six-inch bloody heels, and they're leaping around like mad fools. And you can't expect to be in time and in tune like that. The technology wasn't there, you know, to keep it all together. So who cares? I don't care. The band doesn't care. The album was a huge success. It sounded great in the end. You know, I had to do a lot of work on it. And then they come back and say, well, I want, we want to remix another site. Great. Let's fix it. Let's go for it. Let's do it. And it was, uh, it was a fantastic record that just launched them because they had laid the groundwork for those first three albums. They went out on the road and threw the hell out of it. And they had a very smart manager, Philip Coyne, and they saturated the South and the Southwest and all parts of America. And they had a fan base. It was one of the early bands that really figured out if we don't have a fan base, we've got nothing. And it guaranteed the sale of the, of the live album. Well, needless to say, the live album, Kiss Alive, your first record producing with them, not only saved the band and made the band, but it saved the label as well. It was a make or break proposition. We all know that story. You know, right. in the recent Kiss documentary, and, and and you you know this has been debated forever. And over the decades, the band has even admitted, obviously, that there's not a lot of Kiss Alive that's actually live. You just referenced it in the Kiss documentary. You you made a comment saying something like, you know, there's people that have different recollections of how much of that record is actually live. We've heard stories. The only thing truly live on it were Peter's drums. For for once, once well, and for all, can you set the record straight on it, Eddie? What is live? How much of Kiss Alive is live? It would be very, very tough for me to do that, to give you an answer without sitting in the studio, analyzing the tapes, figuring out where all the punchings were. But I do know for a fact that we fixed a lot of guitars, a fair amount of bass bits here and there, quite a few punchings, a lot of vocal bits that were missed. Peter was remarkably consistent. That is absolutely true. And and his vocals were remarkably consistent. But I I bring back the point that look at the show. You you try to do that. Anybody, I I dare anybody to try to be kid and jump up and down like the way they're doing and keep it together and be on mic and be in tune. I mean, it's it's impossible. So, like I said, Use the example of a half a dozen live albums at that time. They were all bloody well overdone. So I don't feel bad about it. The band doesn't feel bad about it. I don't care. It's the it's the history of the that particular record is going to live on forever, mate. And it was incredible. The the final result was incredible, and fans have enjoyed it for years. So who cares if it, if it was overdubbed on the moon? I don't care. You know what's interesting? 
when you look at the Kiss history and the Kiss lineage with you in particular, so you you do the demos, you don't do the first three studio records, which to this day, Kiss and some of the fans bemoan the production or lack thereof on those records. Although there's things on there I like very much and the material's great. And I, I actually do like the sound of some of those records, but the band themselves have said it, it wasn't on par with what was happening at the time. So then you do a live, the band breaks huge success but then they make another studio record and they go to bob ezrin and not you for destroyer did that bother you at the time or did you understand it no it didn't bother me i mean you know every band has the right to do whoever work with whoever they want and if they feel that bob ezrin was going to do the job they they had a vision like like i said we'd be talking about individuals in various bands that have a vision. You know, Gene and Paul had a vision. They wanted to fulfill that. Great, they did that. Maybe it wasn't uh, as successful as they would have hoped, but it's all part of the whole history of the band. You know, you go through different stages. You try to figure out what's cool. I'm sure they took a lot of good stuff away from that that helped them on the next record. Um, And then fortunately, I did a bunch of records with them that did do very well. Right. Well, that's where we're going. That's where I'm going with this, because I find this really fascinating. So Destroyer, which Ezrin does, which is absolutely a classic record and was a very successful record, although not out of the gate and a very different record sonically in so many ways for Kiss. And the story of that record for people that know it, and Bob has told me this, as well as other interviewers uh, that he's told this to, that it was like going to boot camp. He cracked the whip on those guys. He really worked to get those performances and elevate their game as players. Did you notice a noticeable difference in them as musicians when you started with them on the follow-up to Destroyer, which was Rock and Roll Over? Did you notice uh, that they had advanced greatly as players, whether it was from the experience of being in the studio with Ezrin or even just all the, the, the live shows they had done up to that point, did you notice a big difference in them as accomplished players at that point? Absolutely. I mean, we got to the record plant. I think that's where we were. It was immediate. Uh, whether it was from the stage performances and the three years on the road, which I'm sure contributed a tremendous amount, uh, certainly working with Bob, I'm sure it really helped them. Uh, you know, I think when a band finds that, point where they're comfortable in their own skin with being in the studio and knowing that they can accomplish something without, you know, pulling teeth. That's where we were at. I mean, we rocked it then. From that point on, it was relatively easy. There was very little that we couldn't achieve. I mean, I think the band started to play really well at that moment. So I'm also interested in this. So Destroyer, very different record, different producer. In the end, a very successful record and considered a classic, no doubt. But what I never knew about Destroyer, because I didn't come into the Kiss picture as a fan until the next record, which was the first record you produced for Kiss, studio record, and that was Rock and Roll Over. A record to this day is probably my favorite Kiss studio record. But what I didn't realize, Eddie, until I did a lot of research about that period of time, is that as much as Destroyer was regarded as is now regarded as a classic record, at the time it came out, it alienated a lot of Kiss fans because it was so polished and produced and orchestration and all these things they weren't used to. And I hear Rock and Roll Over, your first record with them in the studio, 
as a complete reaction to that. It, Rock and Roll Over, I know, I believe you recorded it live in a, in a theater somewhere, but it's very much back to the meat and potatoes live raw feel of Kiss. Was that the mandate at that time? Do you recall doing that record? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the whole idea behind it was to get back to more of their roots. There was a lot of reaction from the fans, you know, Gene and Paul and the band kept hearing it. Oh, you better go back to the original sound. And then, of course, I get the call. We picked the, the theater in the round. We had a lot of fun recording it there. Um, and they came up with some brilliant songs. The songs were fantastic. Um, and the performances were great. I mean, they really were playing their butts off. And they were together. I thought that was, that was the whole theme of it. And... I think we, I, as I remember, we did mix it at the, at the record plant. And we didn't track it there, but we, we mixed it there. Um, you know, I think the band were maturing, and they felt very comfortable in those shoes. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> now, the second studio record you did was Love Gun, and I was always curious about this. So now Kiss is one of the biggest bands, if not the biggest band in the world, come around 1977. And on Love Gun, it was significant that Ace made his vocal debut singing a song we mentioned before, Shock Me. When you were doing Rock and Roll Over, were there any discussions at that point on the previous record about Ace singing a lead vocal? How did the discussion, because one of the things I always thought was so amazing about Kiss, among other things, is that at that point, Around, starting with Love Gun, everyone sang lead vocals at least one song on a record or in the show. And that started with Ace with, with the Love Gun record and Shock Me. Were there, was there discussions about that earlier around the time of Rock and Roll Over as well or no? Not that I can remember. I do remember Ace really wanting to, to sing. You know, this is his song and he was really looking forward to it. And he was such a trooper in the studio. He was fantastic. He was his butt off. And he, look, he was not a great singer, but boy, could he deliver it with passion, you know, did it, did it have all the technical attributes of Gene or Paul? No. But it was Ace. It had a character to it. So, and the fans loved it. You know, when he would come out on stage and do it, it put a smile on your face. Because he was having fun with it. It was great. He was, he's not a brilliant singer. He knows that. I mean, he became a pretty damn good singer as, you know, he did, we did the solo album. But um, on that one, this was, this was something he was looking forward to. He wanted to show the guys and the rest of the world, man, I can, I can sing and I can play guitar as well, Carly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and making Kiss Alive 2 versus Alive 1 uh, differences in the band at that point? Were you still in the same position in terms of capturing them live where it was still going into the studio and having to do a lot of overdubs and punch-ins for the same reasons? No, 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 anywhere near as much. Well, you know, a few bits and pieces here and there, but nah. They, they, were, they were pretty damn solid at that point. And the other thing about Alive 2 is the fourth side of the record is studio material. There is endless debate and discussion, Eddie, and you can set this record straight once and for all. All the drums on the studio tracks on Alive 2. Peter Chris? You know, I swear to God, I don't think I can remember. 
Um, there was a point where I think they were thinking about bringing somebody else in, but I swear to God, I can't remember that far back. I, I swear it's a bit of a blur. Because there's a track on that record, uh, there's this track on the studio side of of that uh, album uh, called Larger Than Life that has a very Bonham behind the beat sort of drum drum bit and there's a lot of people that have speculated at that point was we know Anton Fig came into the picture doing studio work not long after that with Kiss was Anton around even at that time perhaps yeah he was I mean he was a friend he was definitely a friend of mine you know ex-South African um and we were we were good friends I just I, you know it's, it's so long ago there was talk about it I would have to really dig through my my records, quote unquote, to see who on earth was playing there. He may have. I, I I can't swear to it though. Because also that was really the first time, and this has been confirmed, obviously, that the late Bob Kulik came in, and outside of on uh, Rocket Ride, which was Ace's song on that, Bob played lead guitar on three tracks. Do you remember the circumstances surrounding that? I know he did play on a couple of tracks. Which ones? I'd be very hard for. So you're right about that. But I just don't remember that far back, quite frankly. And you know what? You know, you know what? You know what I could do is if you if you get me the tape boxes, we can see who played guitar on there because they may even say that. <clears throat> yeah, no, but I doubt. Yeah, I doubt very much with those tape boxes <laughs> yeah right no it's 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 been confirmed and the band themselves have confirmed that on three of the tracks it's bob playing lead guitar that's that's well known it's always that drum bit that people had always wondered if there was a track or two or a moment or two where uh, for whatever reason peter didn't play which ended up di you know happening on subsequent records that you were not a part of so it, it was we just don't know when exactly that started I want to also ask you about the 78 solo records. Now, the record that Ace made in 78 when the band all made four solo records is considered to this day an absolute classic. It's a fantastic record. No one could have seen that coming from Ace at that point, especially given he had only just done his first ever lead vocals. Here's this brilliant record when they all make four studio records and his is the only one that's a hit. He also was the he also was the one that got you to produce the record. Did did Peter or Paul or Gene also approach you about doing their solo records at that time when they all made records? No, not at all. So Ace was always uh, the guy for that that it was the uh, guy that reached out to you. I loved Ace. I told you he's a brilliant guitar player. I've always said that. He um, has a fantastic feel. Uh, he's a great blues player. He's a great rock pop player, and he gets it. He understands what he ha what he had to do within the limitations of his voice, which I think really became quite a character, uh, you know, part of his music was the sound of his voice and his attitude was so cool. I mean, and the stories are a legion about how he. I got him to sing on the floor of, of Plaza Sound. You know, first he was completely horizontal, then gradually he was standing up, and by the end of the session he was fully standing up. <laughs> but uh, because I think he felt more comfortable being in connection with the ground. <laughs> <laughs> but he was wonder. He was so creative in the studio, and you know, we just 
wanted to push the envelope and having Anton uh, on drums is just, are you kidding? That guy's a genius, you know, and it, his fiddles were remarkable. And it, it, that was an inspirational record. And Ace just oh, completely over the top, really came to the party with brilliant parts, uh, suggestions for sounds, for overdubs. And then, of course, when he did that, that sparked my brain to say, well, if we do that, then maybe we can put the guitar through this reverb and then put the amp outside. And, oh, we got up to some wild tricks recording that in the big mansion up in Connecticut. And that was another thing. That reminded me of, you know, recording Zeppelin at uh, Jagger's house was that kind of, here's the mobile, here's this massive mansion, put the drums on the staircase, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. One more thing here, uh, Kiss Ace related, and then we'll do one more break, and then I'll 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 just take a quick few minutes from you because I want to hit you with just some random titles from some other records you've done. Again, we can't do it all, but I do want to ask you just for some quick hit stuff on a few other things. But the last thing on Ace, so you and I first met and connected when I was working at a label called Megaforce, and I was, of course, a huge KISS fan. Ace at that point was considered to be very much damaged goods, very much a liability, very much a risk to get involved with. And you were the guy that contacted us and was was working with Ace to try to bring him back around 1986. And uh, I remember a lunch that we had together at that time, and ultimately we ended up signing him and doing that first record. Why did you believe in Ace like you did, Eddie, especially at that time when so many other people had written him off? Why, why did you feel he was still a viable artist that could be that could turn it around? And were you surprised at that first record that you made with him and how strong it was? No, I wasn't surprised because I believed in him. I've always, always believed in his ability. Um, you know, the, he's had his issues. We, we know what they are. Um, but at that point, I think he was determined to make a change, and he was focused. And that was my... That um, was the trigger for me to say, all right, he's focused. He really wants to do this. He, he can taste now. He, he needs to get back out there and really make a damn fine record. And the choice of musicians, you know... That was the other thing. They all loved him and backed him and felt like this was a true band. Yeah, and it really was. And on that first record, you had John Regan, who brought a lot to the table, Anton Fig playing drums. Uh, Richie Scarlett was there, but was replaced for the record by Todd Howarth at the time. But it was really a, a fantastic band, and it really was a, you know, I, I think we're all very proud of that record and how well it did and how it really established him to, to, to this point, to the career that he still has. Right, exactly that. And it's still it's it's a great sounding record as well. It still is, and obviously you had uh, all to do with that. So it's uh, great memories. It's hard to believe it's been that long ago since we had that lunch and all of that happened. But it is uh, a fantastic record. So obviously the big stuff here we've hit. Uh, Hendrix stuff, Zeppelin stuff, Kiss stuff, but the resume is so expansive. I want to jump around to a few different things that uh, that we mentioned. Eddie, you talk about legendary live records. I I was not aware that you were involved in Frampton Comes Alive. You did that as an engineer. 
I did, yeah. And what about the live aspect of that? There's been it was that truly a live record through and through? Oh yeah, Peter's well, let let's think about Peter Frampton and his genius as a guitar player, singer, songwriter, all of that. Absolutely on the highest possible level. And I was very fortunate I worked with Peter on a couple of his early albums, earlier albums, just before, you know, he hit it big. Um, worked with him at Electric Lady, found this great drummer for him called John Siomas, who was part of the live album. Of course, he unfortunately is not with us anymore, but that was Peter's favorite drummer. I mean, I think his feel contributed tremendously to the record. And you, you can't fault any member of that band. It was almost as if, you know, pick the musicians that will give you the best result and you got them right there in your hand. And, and Peter loved them, all of them. And they all contributed to the whole of this incredible live album that, you know, who knew that it was going to sell, what, 14 million or something like that? It was crazy. Um, no, no major overdubs that I'm aware of. I know he fixed a couple of bits and pieces, you know, the odd note here and there or function of vocal part that might have been missing. There was a bass drum that's famously on stage, apparently. The mic was turned the wrong way or something happened to it and had to re-record the bass drum or whatever. But that's about that, that's about it, that's what I remember. Um, I think Chris, uh, Chris Chris mixed it, I think. Yeah. Chris Kimsey? Yeah, Chris Kimsey did it. Yeah. Good bloke. Marvelous great sense of humor, good friend of Pete's. It's a, it's a wonderful record, you know, it, it's a classic. Well, here we go, classic again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. Speaking of classics, the band Anthrax is currently celebrating their 40th anniversary, and without a doubt, their classic album is the album you produced called Among the Living, and that would have been around 87, and that would have been, I would think, a big shock for you to work with a band that fast, that intense, that heavy in your career at that time. Did you, what was what was your uh, experience like getting into the the thrash metal world working with Anthrax? Oh, it was a big change. I mean, it was unexpected. I had no idea what I was getting into, quite frankly. Um, and I think I learned a lot. I think that there was definitely differences of opinion uh, in the ba- within the band and myself as to direction, blah, blah, blah. But I do remember having a tremendous amount of fun with them. And I remember the surprise hit uh, <laughs> that became a top 10 hit, I think, in the UK. Uh, I'm man. <laughs> who, who would have thought it? I mean, the band completely did a 180 in the studio. You know, Charlie Benanti was playing bass. Everybody switched instruments. I ended up playing piano on it. So did I learn a lot? You bet I did. Because this was the first time I'd been, you know, approached by a heavy metal band. Uh, I think in the end, like you said, it, it, it became a classic because of the intense playing. And that's the thing I learned about this is, doesn't matter if it's a heavy metal record, a fresh record, a blues record. If the intensity is there, 
if you pay attention to what they're trying to say. And it took me a while to figure out their method, which was strange and different for me. But I learned a hell of a lot, I have to say. And I love those guys. That was, that was genius. Yeah, the the album is without a doubt uh, their classic album in their catalog to this day. There's another band that I that comes up quite a bit on my show that was often compared to Kiss and unfortunately never broke through anywhere close to Kiss. But fans always ask me about them, and you produced a record for them that is very highly regarded in their catalog as well. And that band is Angel, and you did a record called On Earth As It Is in Heaven with them. What were your recollections oh, yeah. working with that band, and, and why do you think they never fully broke through? Well, my recollections are hilarious. <laughs> we recorded it in a house uh, in Hollywood um, overlooking Sunset Boulevard. Um, <laughs> it was a haunted house that uh, had been somewhat abandoned. Uh, it belonged to somebody who owned the record plant and was living there, who unfortunately uh, passed soon thereafter. But uh, we got into this house, and we decided, I decided, come on, man, we've we got to record live in this house, once again, bringing in a truck, but we're in the middle of a bloody neighborhood in Hollywood. So I brought in a carpenter, and we uh, soundproofed all the windows <laughs> with with plywood and fiberglass. And uh, it was so much fun. I mean, we recorded basically the whole tracking of the album was done there until the cops shut us down because of the leakage. We still had leakage. <laughs> um, it was a fun album to do. I, I really enjoyed working with them. They're great, great guys, uh, great musicians. But I think they're, the reason why they may not have made it is because of the visual. When you look at the band, they were sort of, you know, with the long hair and the blondes and the, the you know, white. tapes and all of that. Yeah, all the white silk and all of that. I think maybe that was a bit pretentious, possibly. <laughs> I don't know. Um, the music was cool, but I think uh, maybe the, uh, the Hollywood set sort of turned on them and then I don't know what happened. You know, who knows what happens with that? <laughs> right. Let me let me ask you about the first Fastway album in 1983. Fast Eddie Clark, uh, Jerry Shirley, Dave King. That record, I mean, obviously very Zeppelin-esque. What an amazing record, though, that that first album is. What do you remember about that, working on that one? Uh, that is one of my favorite records. Uh, that was Superb. What a great party band. So sad that they never went any further. They, they did have a hit that broke out of Cleveland, I believe. Say what you um, will. Say what you will. An amazing band. I love Fast Eddie Clark. He was fantastic. Dave Key was just a great little Irish singer with a hook nose. Boy, could he sing his ass off. Um, the whole band was phenomenal. And once again, a band that had a direction. They had a sound. They knew where they were going with it. Uh, amazing playing. Who the hell knew it wasn't going to be a big record? But, you know, there was a lot of competition in those days, don't forget. Well, the other thing, the way in Fast Way, Fast was Fast Eddie Clark. The way was Pete Way from UFO, who couldn't stay in the band. 
and and how to pull out of the whole thing. But but do you recall him ever recording anything? Did you ever record Pete Way for that record? Never. He just missed the boat. <laughs> <laughs> as as Pete, literally literally and figuratively. <laughs> right. As as Pete's been known to do. Let let me ask you about another record which um it's interesting with this record because this record and this band were certainly not successful into this day. Probably a lot of people that don't know who they are, but over time in, in, in England, especially, and also in America where they're from, this record has taken on cult status as an absolute classic record. And that's a record called night of the crime by a band out of Arizona called icon who I ended up doing a record with for Megaforce a couple of years later. But do you, what do you recall about working with that band? And are you aware that that record has, has taken on new status as a, as a cult classic? I am shocked. I'm absolutely it's the first I've ever heard because I did. I recorded that in Bansville, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I do remember the band. Um, I can't imagine that was taken off cult status. Is any reasoning behind that? I. It's a great record. (laughs) I mean, it's a great record. I mean, it's a phenomenal record. And it's a record that, especially in the UK, where it's been reissued a couple times, I mean, it is just looked at as a very much an underground classic record. It's a, it's a phenomenal record. I believe you produced it. And I think Ron Nevison ended up mixing it, but and it was a big departure from their first record, which was more of a metal record, but it has absolutely taken on new status over the decades since it's been out. Well, if you could find a copy for me or, or some kind of link so I can listen to it again, because I do not have a copy of it. I'd oh, love I, to hear it. It's been reissued a couple times and remastered a couple times, so I can gladly get you a copy of it, and we'll, we'll certainly follow up with you on that. Um, you also did a record that is uh, by a band called The Scream that didn't last that long, but John Karabi uh, was the singer in that band. What are your recollections about that? Oh, the one of the most... I loved that record so much, and I had so much fun recording them in L.A. Uh, at this fantastic studio. It was actually right around the corner from my house, and uh, it was a crazy thing. Working with <laughs> this band... Uh, what's the name of the guitar player, the lead guitar player? Uh, in the scream, in the scream, I don't recall. I just knew Karabi was the singer, John Karabi. Karabi was okay. Karabi was it. As far as I'm concerned, he was the sound of the band. Uh, but I do remember having some issues with the guitar player, who became a very well-known uh, one of those Speed King type guitar players, you know, and, and heavy metal and all the rest of that. We we definitely had words. <laughs> But that was the time, you know. But John Carrage, what a singer. Good creep. And he went on to sing with, um, who was it? Motley Crue. Motley Crue, yeah. Great, great singer. Yeah, and and yeah, it's interesting because that that record is, uh, was it Bruce Boulette was the guitar player? You're trying to remember? Yes. Yeah. And he went on to be in a band called Racer X with Paul Gilbert that, you're right, was Total Shred Thing. Total Shred Thing, yeah. 
Right. And he was headed in that direction, and I tried to pull him back <laughs> <laughs> while we were doing this race. Can you, can, yeah, you, can you tell me about working with Loudness on the album Hurricane Eyes? Akira, a fantastic guitar player. Uh, Max Norman was on my show with me. He did the album prior for Loudness. He talked about how right. difficult it was getting English vocals out of them at that time you were one record down the line from the album max did with them was it a bit easier when you got to them or was it still a challenge as far as the the vocals and lyrics well i can remember <laughs> no i had great fun i have i have great memories of that we we i recorded that in japan uh, i remember i remember this so clearly they sent me a picture of the studio. I thought, oh, cool, man. This was a big studio, high ceiling. Wow, this is going to be great. Fly over, land there, blah, blah, blah. Send me to the studio. I want to check it out. And I go walk in the studio, and it is, I'm thinking, this great-sounding room it is so dead. It's like being in an anatoid chamber. I'm going, oh, Christ, what am I going to do now? I seem to remember ordering um, bunches of plywood to put on the against the wall so to liven it up. And then on the day we started to record, the multi-track machine broke. And so now, oh, bigger problem. Oh, bigger problem. Okay. So we all we all gathered into this room. Uh, and because you know how the Japanese are it's so cool. They work in committee, right? And there's like the studio manager and the engineers and the, everybody's in the sort of like 12 people in the room. And all of a sudden, one of the roadies from the band says, I know there's a type machine. <laughs> Within an hour, they'd come back with a truck and a tape machine, and they and they hauled the thing upstairs, and we recorded. But uh, that's how I did that album. It was so much crazy fun. Two more, and then I'll let you go. You worked with Triumph, great Canadian trio. You did a great record called Thunder Seven with them. Any recollections working with Triumph? Your thoughts? Well, I happen to know the guy pretty well. Uh, that album went gold. I was very pleased to see. Um, the guitar player, um, is a well-known guitar player here in Canada. Rick Emmett. He's got his own band. Yeah, Rick Emmett, genius guitar player. Um, fantastic band. And I had so much fun with them. They had their own studio. That was the cool thing. I had never met a band that actually had their own studio. It was um, it, it was genius. You know, you could get in there and spend as much time as you wanted. You didn't have to watch the clock. We got great sound and a lot of perfectionist attitude, which I really liked. Because, you know, everybody was on their game, how to get the vocals right, how to get all the guitar parts right, uh, get the background. I mean, it's just detail-oriented and sounded amazing. They're a very, very powerful band. They were huge here and 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 in the state like i said gold record wow that was nice and finally what was it like record uh working with the band alcatraz the album disturbing the peace steve Vai recording him very early in his career what was that experience like very exciting <laughs> uh steve Vai, perfectionist genius guitar player a great guy he's a dear friend um it took a while for me to get into the, once again, this is the attention to digital. He's doing all these massive 
hills at high speed. We had to develop special techniques on how to punch him. No, I mean, not literally in the face, but I mean <laughs> on the tape machine. Uh, because in those days, the punches, when you were dropping in, it's not like Pro Tools where you could do multiple tracks and just, you know, edit them together. You actually had to punch in like 30 second notes, uh, 30 second beat notes, you know, and try to get in. Wow. That was the challenge. We recorded that at Cherokee Studios in Los Angeles. And, um, well, you know what it's like recording in LA. <laughs> Hey, man. <laughs> um, hey, man, let's go, down to the, let's go down to the bar, man. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm ragging on my California friends, and I shouldn't. Um, but, it, you know, it was a particular time. Um, I think the band was tremendous. I mean, intense, uh, fast, furious. I mean, the singing was great. The whole band was tight. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, Eddie, I only have about a minute or two left, and then I know i got to let you go as well. Anything you want to – I mean, I could go on forever. There's so many records we didn't hit. But just in closing, uh, I know you've got a book coming. I know a documentary coming. I know we'll, I'm sure we'll be talking again when those things are ready to hit the market. Anything else that you want to share with the audience or mention to the audience about what you're doing now? Leave the mistakes in. <laughs> Is that going to be the title of your book? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I agree with you. One of my biggest peeves is bands these days not truly playing live and all these effects and tracks and whatever. It makes me nuts. I want warts and all, and I appreciate that about my rock and roll, and I appreciate you giving me so much time here today. I know the audience does as well, being so generous with your time and the stories here. We could we could go on forever, but uh, it's been a pleasure to know you all these decades, and I can't thank you enough for doing this, Eddie. Thank you, Eddie Trunk. I'll Go, audience. Keep, keep rocking. Thank you. You too, my friend. And we'll talk, to, we'll talk to you soon, and I look forward to the projects you have coming in the future. Take care of yourself. Take care, too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was so much fun, and there was so much more I could have done. Maybe somewhere down the line I can get around to with Eddie Kramer. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I enjoyed doing it and listening to it myself. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, which is new every Thursday. Thank you for subscribing, favoriting, whatever you do. We appreciate it. Thanks to Joel Pollack for producing. Listen to me every day on Sirius XM Volume Channel 106, live 2 to 4 Eastern. Nightly re-airs 10 to midnight Eastern. Everything on the app, audio, video, and more. All your rock talk, interviews, news, it all originates there, and you get a little tiny taste here on the podcast. At Eddie Trunk on social media, especially Twitter and Instagram, please follow where I am most active. And I'll see you next Thursday. Yeah, next Thursday. Another all-new episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast right here. Thank you for checking it out. Have a good week. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music field trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. 
Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave.